morning, everyone. Great to be with you today. We're continuing in our message series on uh, how God brings hope to our relationships, and I want to start the day uh, with just kind of a corny story. And some of you are thinking, Jeff, all your stories are, are corny, but let me just get through this, okay? Once upon a time, there was a college-age daughter who went to her father with the words that every father of a daughter dreads. Dad, I've met the guy I want to marry. I want you to meet him. He's wonderful. He's coming to the house tomorrow. I want you to sit down and get to know him. And that's a big, scary thing for a dad. So the dad takes a deep breath and tries to stay positive and says, okay, I'll talk with him tomorrow. The next day, young man comes over to the house, introduces himself, says, hi, I'm Larry, and I want to marry your daughter. And the dad welcomes him in, and he says, you know, have a seat. I'm really glad you're here because... My wife and I, you know, our daughter is very precious to us, so anybody who wants to marry her, we've got to make sure that he's the right guy. So I, I just have a few questions for you. And the young man says, fire away. I don't have any secrets, sir. I'm ready. He says, well, first of all, my wife and I need to know that you're someone who's stable, you know, that you bring some, something solid to the marriage. So first question, obviously, what do you do for a living? You know, what kind of job, what kind of career are you looking into? And the young man says, well, I don't really work. You know, I don't really have a career, but, but God will provide. Okay, just played the God card, you know. A red light goes off in the dad's mind because when anybody plays the God card that early in a conversation, you know, you've got to be a little bit cautious. So he says, all right, I'll give him a pass on that one. Let's go on to question number two. If you don't have a job and you don't have a career, do you have any assets? Do you have any money in the bank or uh, stocks, bonds, real estate. I mean, what are you and my daughter going to be able to live on? He says, sir, well, I don't have any of that. I don't have any savings. I don't have any stocks, no real estate. But God will provide. Now the dad's sweating bullets, okay? He says, okay, third question. Do you have any dreams? Do you have any aspirations? You know, do you have any goals? What's your ambition in life? You know, what are you going to do with your life? The boy says, sir, I don't have any dreams. I don't really have any aspirations, no goals, but guess what? God will provide. So the young man leaves, and now the dad is traumatized. You know, his wife comes in, how'd it go? He says, honey, I got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is the guy's got no job, no assets, and, and no goals, no ambition in life whatsoever. So now the wife is traumatized. So that's horrible. What's the good news? Well, the good news is he thinks I'm God. You know, as corny as that sounds, for some of you, it might hit a little bit too close to home. That story illustrates one of the core issues in unhealthy, kind of crazy relationships. Because in every relationship that drives you crazy, you're connecting with someone who expects you to be God for them, expects you to take responsibility for some area of their life that's really their responsibility. I've got financial problems, you solve it. Uh, you be God to my money. I've got emotional problems. You solve it. You be God to my personality. I've got all kinds of problems, and it's your job to solve my problems. You be God to my struggles, my failures, the fact that I have no motivation or no ambition. If you're in a relationship with someone who expects you to be God in any area of life, that should drive you crazy. Because God does not intend for you to take that kind of responsibility for another person's life. That's why healthy relationships have to have strong boundaries. Healthy relationships need 
strong boundaries. Think for a moment. Is there someone in your life who is asking you to be God for them? Who's asking you to take responsibility for their money problems, their emotional problems, their loneliness, or their frustration? Who's demanding that you take care of them and take too much responsibility? Who basically says, I'm miserable, you fix it. Because that will never work out. That will never work out. That's not the way God wants your relationships to go. There's a better way. King Solomon writes in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That simple verse uses two kind of super superlatives, above all and then everything. That's Solomon's way of saying, pay attention, knuckleheads. This is really important. Put down your phone and listen. Listen, underline this in your Bible. When the Bible says above all, well, there are a lot of really important things in the Bible, and this one should be way up there at the top of the list. This is an important thing. It's a big deal. If you're in life, it's important for you to guard your heart. In life, it's appropriate for you to guard your heart. Guard your heart. Well, what's your heart? In the Hebrew, your heart is your inner person. The inner man, the inner woman, it's the, everything that's important to you, your core values, that's part of your heart. Your, your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, your decisions, your dreams, your goals, all of that is in your heart. So don't think of a Valentine's Day heart. Don't romanticize it that way. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word that is most often translated as heart in English it's actually the word for your intestines. It's your guts. It's the core of who you are. Guard your heart, for from, from it flow the wellsprings of life. If somebody is trying to get you to take care of their life and it's making you crazy, it's probably because you're not guarding your heart appropriately. So let's talk just a bit about how does God want relationships to work, about what a healthy relationship should look like. Last week, Mike Flavin uh, spoke a little about, about having space for grace in your relationships, and I want to pick up on that. Because grace is, is understanding the reality that God is for you. God is not against you. God is for you. He's on your side. He wants you on his team no matter what. He offers to love you no matter what. Grace means that there's nothing that I can do that will make God happier and will make him love me more. And grace means there's nothing that I can do that's going to make God love me any less. God won't love me anymore if I perform well, and he's not going to love me less if I screw up. I need to know that. You need to know that. I can, can't perform better, and he'll love me more, and I can't like screw up so royally that he's going to ever love me any less. He just loves you. That's grace. And grace comes in two forms. First, this vertical relationship we have with God the Father. Through his word, through the scripture, through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. That's the vertical part of grace. I have a grace-filled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He loves me. I know I'm forgiven. And because of that, I want to love him back. But there's another part of grace, and that's the horizontal part. God wants to model this vertical love now with other people. Jesus said, as I have loved you, now you love one another. John 13, 34. Very simple. Jesus said, take the love that I give to you and replicate that with other people. Replicate this grace-filled love relationships, the same thing that I gave to you, give to others. That's the horizontal. So we take in grace from God, 
and then we're supposed to give grace to others. And you know, what really feels graceful is when you're in a relationship and people listen to you, where you can tell your story and they don't condemn you, where they don't judge you, that's, in a sense, experiencing grace. And that's the fuel of life because it feels like you're in a safe place. You're in a safe relationship. No condemnation, no judgment. Safe. When we're put in judgment, we tend to shut down. We tend to pull back and we start playing games with people. But when you're safe, you can be yourself. You can, you can relax and you can open up. And that's what grace is all about. You can be who you really are. And then there's truth in the relationship. Truth that helps you to look at your rough edges and look at the ways that you might be kind of damaging yourself or others and how you might end up in the ditch. But grace is then provides a structure, provides a balance for that. Crazy relationships don't have any of that. No sense of balance, safety, or structure. Let me take a worst case scenario just for a second. The Bible talks a lot about people who are just out of control. Romans 13, 13 says, let's behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing with drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Paul's describing someone whose life is just out of control. Their behavior, their attitude is just kind of off the charts. They're impulsive, they act out, they're destructive. They stomp all over the balance in the relationship. And you know why? Because out of control people, they just trample all over grace. They take advantage of grace. The best example of an out of control relationship is if you have a relationship with someone who's got an addiction. If you've got a relationship with an addict, you already understand everything I'm trying to say. An addict is imprisoned by something, alcohol, drugs, pornography, a substance, food, compulsive behavior, and everything in life revolves around that behavior, that thing, and they will trample everything else. What happens is if you love that person, you may start to take responsibility for their emotions and their lives and even their addiction eventually. It doesn't start that way at first, but it builds slowly over time. And you begin to take on the role of being their parent their parent, and the addict takes on the role of being the child, and you try to fix them, you try to rescue them, you try to enable them. You know, we all know that's called being codependent. Well, codependent means that's when you're falling off a cliff and somebody else's life flashes before your eyes because you're so enmeshed, you're so entangled, you can't find yourself because you're so tangled up. In, it's like living inside a net with this other person. Everything's out of balance. And it's horrible because they don't get any better and you don't get any better either. Take the situation of a young woman that I knew from a previous ministry. She had a boyfriend, nicest guy in the world, but he drinks too much. He's got a drinking problem. Well, how do you know if you've got a drinking problem? Very simple. Every time he drinks, there's a problem. There are arguments. There's misunderstandings. He forgets things. He makes promises, doesn't follow through. He's got a DUI, a car crash. He's got no cash because he's spending it all on alcohol. He drinks to get drunk. He can't just have one. Then he's drunk numerous times throughout the week. He doesn't think he has a drinking problem. He's got a problem. He thinks he's got a girlfriend nagging me problem. If she'd stop nagging, I could drink and then we'd all be happy. That's a great relationship, isn't it? So what's she doing about it? She told me she had a four-point strategy. Number one, when she goes out, when he goes out drinking with his friends, I'm the designated driver, and I sit there and watch them get drunk. How much fun is that relationship, you know, where you watch other people get drunk? 
What's the second part of her strategy? She says, well, I have a lot of uh, recovery and AA and Al-Anon brochures, and I leave them around my house and in my car, and I hope he'll pick one up and read it. And that's just what every addict wants to do, right, is pick up a brochure about a recovery program. They're already in denial, and so it's going to be kind of hard for that to work. So her third big strategy she says, I, I text him a couple of times throughout the day to see if he's drinking. You know, it's 3 o'clock. Are you drinking yet? 5 o'clock. Have you started drinking yet? As though that's really going to change the person's behavior because most of the time they'll just lie about it anyway. Her fourth strategy is when he lost his job because he drank too much, she started paying his rent so that he wouldn't get behind and would still be able to have a place to live. And as, you know, Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you, you know? She was miserable. It wasn't working. She felt helpless. She was going broke because she was taking care of him and propping him up. And nothing was changing with him. That's an out-of-control relationship. But there's another kind of problem, and it's not the out-of-control relationship. It's the I'm-trying-to-control relationship. Someone who's skilled at manipulating other people, especially you, do you have somebody who you think is trying to control you? Because nobody should ever have the right to control you. Galatians 5.1 says, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Now he's talking about people who try to go back underneath the Old Testament law, but the principle is the same. That Christ died for you so that you can have a sense of freedom in your life. And freedom means being able to make Choices, it means being able to express your opinion. It means you should have a voice in what's happening in your life. You should be free to be able to choose how you spend your money or where you want to go on a weekend or, or your opinion that it actually matters. You should be free in saying, you know, this is how I want to be respected and this is how I want to be talked to. I'm not going to be loved in the way that you're trying to love me because that just brings a lot of pain into my life. I need to be free in saying how I want to be treated. I should be free to say, this doesn't work for me. Christ died so that you could have that kind of freedom. But there are people who don't really want you to be free. They want you to kind of be under their thumb. And so what happens is we go along to get along. But if you have an opinion or voice another uh, option, things blow up and then you have to walk on eggshells. It's hard to be around people who are trying to control you. They don't control themselves, but they sure try to control you. And people do it primarily in two ways. They control either by anger or through guilt. By anger, if you don't do it my way, I'll be mad at you. If you do it my way, we're fine. But if you don't do it my way, I'm going to blow up. I'm going to escalate. I'll be in your face. The things that I have heard in couples that they call each other, the foul language, but also the name-calling. If you don't do it my way, I'm going to scream. I'm going to throw a tantrum like a three-year-old if you don't do things my way. There are people who control by anger. And then there are people who control by guilt. Guilt doesn't say, you know, if you don't do it my way, I'll get mad at you. It says, if you don't do it my way, I'm hurt. I'm not mad. I'm just hurt. And that's as just as strong a way of controlling as anger. Tears become a weapon. They saturate the conversation with their disappointment. They, they play the victim. They say, I was only trying to help. And they say that a lot. They always claim to be misunderstood, unappreciated. They control with guilt. And if we were to divide up the room and say, okay, everybody who's controlled by guilt go on this side, and everybody who's controlled by anger go on this side, it'd probably be a pretty even split, I would say. 
There's a different way to live. It's a crazy maker when we live that way. Either you've got the out of control person or the trying to control person. There's a different way to go through life, to have a balanced relationship because God never intended for you to live this way. So partial of the answer has to do with boundaries, restoring a sense of balance in your life. And I think most of us would like to have a better sense of the boundaries in our lives. It's kind of a strange word. Some people don't like the word boundaries because it brings up the image of like a castle with a big moat filled with alligators. Like it's a mean thing. It's a cruel thing to have boundaries in your life. But it's, it's not cruel. A boundary is simply like a property line around your house. It's, a, it's like a line around your home that says, anything on this side of the line, it's my problem. If my plumbing goes out, if my electricity goes out, that's my problem. On the other side of the line is my neighbor's house, and that's his plumbing and his electricity. Now, if he has a uh, plumbing problem, I can offer to help, but ultimately, it's going to be his responsibility. It's my neighbor's responsibility. Remember Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Your heart is everything within your property line. And so a boundary line protects what's yours. There's one of the key aspects of having this kind of boundary that I just want to mention very quickly. And that is, it means that you can love without rescuing people. Love without rescuing. Because love and rescuing are very different things. Rescuing and enabling, you know, that kind of codependency, it is not the same thing as love. Because love says, I'm on your team, I'm on your side, but I am not going to always fix your problems. Galatians 6.2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. And then he adds in verse 5, each one should carry their own load. Now, a lot of Christians get confused by that because, yes, we are supposed to go the extra mile with somebody who's struggling. Yes, we are supposed to give the shirt off your back. I mean, we're supposed to live sacrificial lives. But let me explain this passage a little bit more because people get it wrong. He, when he says, carry each other's burdens, and then he says, carry your own burdens, I mean, if that's just like I got to do both of those, I might as well not get out of bed in the morning, right? If that's true, I got to carry all of your burdens and all of my burdens, that's not going to work. That's really not what he's saying. In the Greek, it's different. The word he uses for burden literally means a big boulder. It's a back-crushing problem. It's something that a person cannot carry by themselves and they don't need just one other person to come and help them. They need the whole body of Christ to come and help them, okay? It's a problem that is too big for that person to handle on their own, but they need the whole body of Christ to come in and help them. It's a big issue. They're, they're going through a divorce, and they need somebody to help them. Their house is starting to go under financially. One person can't share that, but a church can help somebody who's maybe in that kind of a situation. They've got a child who's sick and they, they don't know how to cope with that. That's a whole church problem coming alongside to help them share their burdens. And it's only for a temporary period of time until they're strong enough to carry it on themselves. That's what it means to carry each other's burdens. But the second part says each one should carry their own load. The word there means like a knapsack or a backpack. It's like when you're going jogging or hiking or going to school. It's what you need to carry for that day. And in a sense, that's your heart. Whatever goes into your backpack, that's your emotions, your values, your goals, your dreams, all of those things that make up you, that's your backpack. And life goes very well when we carry other people's burdens in a crisis, 
when we help them with a specific problem, but we don't ever pick up their backpack. Life goes poorly when you start picking up somebody else's backpack because now you've got a problem because you've got all their emotions and everything else that you're trying to fix. All of their long-term issues that, that you're supposed to now fix. That is a bad way to live and you should not pick up those kind of problems from other people. I mean, have you ever tried to make a miserable person happy? It just really does not work and it usually drags you down too. You become unhappy just like that young woman with the alcoholic boyfriend. It just doesn't work. We need to love without rescuing. So here's the question to ask, to see if you're loving or rescuing. Should they be doing this by themselves? Is this something they should be doing by themselves? Getting a job, getting clean, getting sober, getting rid of a bad attitude, solving their own financial problems. Should they, can they be doing that by themselves? And when you can answer that question, it solves a lot of problems. To love without rescuing means that you have to be willing to say, that doesn't work for me. That, doesn't, that tone of voice, that doesn't work for me. Those hurtful words, that doesn't work for me. Those names that you call me, that does not work for me. And then you have to back it up with action. No more money. No more driving to pick them up in the middle of the night. No more lying for them. No more covering. No more making excuses for them. You don't protect them from their consequences. They, folks who are at this level, the only way they change is when they feel the pain of their consequences. That's the only thing that will allow them to change. A very good friend of mine had to make the very painful decision not to bail his 28-year-old son out of jail because his son needed to be in jail. That was the only way he was going to be forced to get the help that he needed. And it broke my friend's heart to hear the names that his son called him and brought up every bad thing that the father had ever done in his whole life. But he had to hold his ground because out of love, out of love, he could no longer rescue his son. And praise God, he got the help that he needs and he's doing great now. But it was only because his father was willing to take the harder kind of love that said, I will not rescue you this time. Love, but don't rescue this is an empowering message. It gives you the power that maybe you never had before to have a conversation with that crazy-making person in your life and to be able to say to them, this doesn't work for me. Can we all say just those five words together, please? These five wonderful words. Just say it with me. This doesn't work for me. Good job. You may have to practice that sometimes with people. Because when you get into the situation, it might be really hard to say. But if you've got a crazy-maker in your life right now, you know who it is. You may be trying to heal them. You may be trying to nag them. You may be trying to avoid them. But remember, grace means God's with you. God is for you. God wants to help you when you have that hard conversation. He'll even teach you how to do it, the scripture says. God will give you the words because he wants you to love them. He'll give you the grace to love them, but not to rescue them. God wants you to be able to set healthy limits and healthy boundaries in your relationships. Let's pray together. God, we need your grace and your truth in this area. Help us to say yes when we're supposed to say yes. Help us to say no when we're supposed to say no. And I pray that for anybody here who is in a very difficult relationship right now, that you'd give them the courage and the wisdom to have those tough conversations, to do it in love, 
to be able to say, honestly, this does not work for me, and to be able to chart a path that could lead towards healing and restoration. But Lord, we need your grace to do it because often we're not strong enough on our own. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us to guard our hearts and into that way to develop appropriate relationships and boundaries. In Christ's name we pray, amen.